The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this installment of our program, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today, we're going to explore a couple of themes that we've touched on in previous broadcasts, specifically the approaches of the natural sciences to archaeology. Uh, in the past half century, certainly, the role of natural science has been enhanced because of advances in methods and theories and applications and the clear understanding on the part of archaeologists that the natural sciences have an extremely important role to play in advancing the knowledge base. And we have had a couple of programs on the general theme. And today's focus will be on geoarchaeology, which is probably the most logical connection between archaeology and a single one, if you wish, of the natural sciences. And that is the relationship between the earth sciences, geology in particular, and archaeology, because artifacts are housed or preserved in natural deposits. They create cultural deposits as well, and we'll talk about this in greater length. But what I'm trying to emphasize at this particular point is we just want to look at how the deposits and the accumulations of cultural materials and natural materials sort of form a natural wedding or a natural association uh, between one another. And to understand the one, you have to understand the other. And we'll be talking about how the specifics of this interaction between archaeological process and geological process works with my two guests. I have two very prominent geoarchaeologists with us today. Uh, Vance Holliday, who many of you may have uh, heard on a previous uh, program on the peopling of the Americas. Vance Holliday is professor in the departments of anthropology and geosciences at the University of Arizona. He received his Ph.D. in geology at the University of Colorado. His research interests extend into geoarchaeology, paleo-Indian archaeology, and quaternary landscape evolution. His research areas are focused on the American Southwest and northern New Mexico. Uh, Vance has, is also the executive director of the Argonaut Archaeological Research Fund, the AARF, which is dedicated to the study of the earliest peopling of the greater southwest. Vance has also done fieldwork in the Pampas of Argentina and in the Don River Valley in Russia. 
He has authored and edited several volumes, including Soils and Archaeology, Landscape Evolution and Human Occupation, published in 1992, Paleo-Indian Geoarchaeology in the Southern High Plains, 1997, Soils and Archaeological Research in 2004. Vance, welcome to the program. Hi, Joe. Thanks. Good to hear from you. And Sarah Sherwood, our second guest, is currently an assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Department at Suwannee, the University of the South, where she also serves as the university archaeologist. Uh, Dr. Sherwood received her Ph.D. from the University of Tennessee in 2001. Prior to coming to Suwannee, Dr. Sherwood worked as consulting geoarchaeologist and associate director for the Archaeology Research Laboratory at the University of Tennessee, and she has conducted fieldwork across the eastern United States overseas as well in Iceland, South Africa, Western and Eastern Europe, and she is currently working in two very different parts of the world on the South uh, Cumberland Plateau of Tennessee and Alabama, as well as the Balkans of Eastern Europe. Uh, I would like to start the discussion, if I if I would, uh, if I could, uh, Vance, with you, because you have sort of, in a sense, your career has sort of chronicled some of the major developments in our field. So why don't you give us just sort of a little bit of a historic background as to how geoarchaeology evolved as a discipline, where it got started, what are some of the major turning points in the evolution of the field, and how did the initial interpretive perspective of geoarchaeology Archaeology work its way into the broader archaeological uh, interpretive segment. Is that all? That's it. <laughs> okay. That's oh it, Vance. Um, well, um, there's a lot of different opinions on where it started and how it got started. As far as I'm concerned, um, certainly one of the big early steps was in um, Western Europe, primarily France, in the 1800s when. Uh, the study of the French Paleolithic, the the original caveman, if you want to use that term, uh, research began on the, a lot of the famous uh, cave sites that produced um, essentially our, our our first look at um, ancient humans in um, in Ice Age Europe, and geologists were uh, important part of that. Um, a lot of a lot of geologists were also paleontologists, and so that was important. So they could look at the uh, you know, identify the animal remains, but also understand how these these caves evolved over time. Because you'd have these inner layers of human occupation debris, and then um, geologic sediments of some kind. So that was a, a big step. And in a similar way, something I'm more familiar with in the U in North America, it was later in the early half of the 20th century when uh, archaeologists and geologists, in fact, initially geologists, started finding the very earliest sites that we talked about a year ago on this show, uh, so-called Paleo-Indian sites, when people, the earliest occupants of North America, when they were living in a very different environment, um, Right at the right at the tail end of the of the last ice age, and early on, people I think realized, wow, these this conditions were very different because we're finding these bones and these archaeological remains in stream deposits and lake deposits, and here we are out on the Great Plains, and it's hot and dry, and there's not a drop of water in sight. So it was very obvious that something had changed, and uh, 
then, uh, as far as another specific important step, the, uh, the development of radiocarbon dating, C14 dating in about 1950, and that revolutionized archaeology, it revolutionized geology, uh, had a, a huge impact on the various disciplines we all deal with. And then about that time was the, uh, the rise of so-called environmental archaeology in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where environmental sciences that you mentioned at the beginning of the show were being incorporated more systematically into archaeology. People began to realize that, hey, this, this is really important, understanding environmental side of, of the human past. And, and geoarchaeology came along um, right along with that, and then I guess, and this is all, I'm just dreaming this up off the top of my head. I think the, the most recently with the development of, of, uh, of contra, or CRM archaeology, cultural resource management archaeology, which you're so familiar with, uh, geoarchaeology is, is now generally a, a regular component of that, so you could probably pick out those four or five major steps, at least uh, off the top of my head, that's what I can can come up with. I think you're right, and I think one of the key issues here, and one of, one of the most important elements in this, is is the development of absolute dating, especially for the earlier sites that you talked yeah. about, the ones in France, where all of a sudden, instead of simply speculating on the antiquity of the remains, we had an absolute barometer of how old these things are. And uh, certainly up to 40,000 years ago at that particular point in time, I think that was pretty revolutionary. And then all of a sudden, geological expertise at cave sites and, and in river sites allowed us to look at an integration and to look at how environments change because flooding regimes changed. And we were able to monitor all this with, uh, as time goes on with ever smaller bits of radiocarbon and, and to uh, to incorporate that element in, into our study of geoarchaeology. And so I think that as time proceeds and as we get more sophisticated in our methods, uh, geoarchaeologists just, is just having a bigger and bigger role in, in how we explain these sites. Um, Sarah, I'm interested from your perspective, how did you get into it? Because, uh, I hate to say this, Vance and I are pretty old people and, and you're, <laughs> you're I'm sort of, uh, you're working on it and I know that. <laughs> but how did you, how did you get attracted to the field and, uh, what sort of drew you into it? Because again, you, you're, you were, uh, brought into this sort of as as a person where there was already sort of a baseline for doing geoarchaeology and uh, you sort of had sort of a design and, and, and a regimen for how you got into it and I'm curious as to what attracted you into the uh, to the field. Well in my case uh, you might say that this apple didn't fall far from the tree because my father's a geologist uh -huh. um, oh. with a very active interest in history and so I um basically spent my childhood, you know, vacations. We're now driving to the Triassic Basin. Um, and <laughs> so, and I had always been interested in archaeology. In fact, I went on my first dig at 12. Um, I tagged along on a local field school. Having grown up in a college town, that was, that was convenient. But I think from the geoarchaeology end, I have always looked at the archaeological record from the perspective of context. Um, I always thought artifacts were fun and artifacts were cool, but it, it's always been about context for me. So I think I'm kind of unusual in that in that way. And so in college, I took as many geology classes as I could get and took soils. And so I've always 
essentially come at it from that perspective. And when you're saying context, I just want to sort of expand this to to the broader audience. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the artifacts, but where they're found, how they're found, and in this particular sense, the sediments or the dirt or the soil in which they're found. So that and and that drew you uh, naturally to it because you had that background, correct? Exactly. So, so standing back and looking at the at the broader landscape and thinking. How did this material get here? What was the landscape like when people were living here? And um, then looking at various layers within sites and thinking about them in terms of soils and and changing landscape conditions and you know near a river floods things like that. And so I've that's always been my first perspective. Which um, again I think it's kind of unusual. So when I when I picked a school I. I didn't so much go looking for a geoarchaeologist to work with as much as I went looking for a large enough school that would have all of these different things that I could take courses in. Um, and from there, I, I just sort of picked up mentors along the way that could help me in what I was interested in. So um, I guess I'm a, little, so I'm a little unusual in that way, I think. But by the time you were in grad school, there was already sort of a pathway for identifying a program and special and and uh, sort of focusing on the types of things that would help you actually put together a program that you would feel comfortable with. Correct? Ab- absolutely. And I had I had taken a field course from Julie Stein at the University of Washington, um, and really gain more of an insight into geoarchaeology as a discipline. Working with her. And we were working on a shell mound, and it was a standard archaeological field school. I'd already had a field school, but I had gone out there to try something new, try something different uh, after I graduated from college and um, had never been west of the Mississippi at that point. And so it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience, and she helped me sort of narrow down my interests in that way and and so I I very seriously thought about going to school out there but but didn't end up there so she was really helpful and on that note we're going to take our first break in the program we will come back with our special guests Vance Holiday and Sarah Sherwood after these words Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to our program. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein, and uh, today's episode is Geoarchaeology, where we are exploring the nexus or the intersection of the uh, geological sciences and archaeological sciences, and we have discussed its evolution to some degree and how natural sciences uh, are becoming increasingly more important in archaeological excavations and how the training of a geoarchaeologist is of sort of a very focused field that really doesn't have a formal protocol at this point, but is certainly starting to develop one. Uh, graduate students start to put their programs together by looking at what's available in various departments and uh, drawing on environmental sciences to a large degree and um, trying to cobble together programs that will allow them to uh, sort of integrate their archaeological investigations with uh, what's known about the natural environment and using sort of the framework of times and time and change to to uh, explore these possibilities. Vance, I was going to ask you, uh, one of the points that you brought up earlier in, in some of our discussions on this is that one of the advantages of geoarchaeology is the potential for predicting where archaeological sites are and aren't. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of an explanation on how geology helps us to locate sites and sort of develop some kind of a framework for uh, expectation, if you will. Sure. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think this is one of the more fundamentally important aspects of archaeology, particularly, well, certainly in in, uh, in cultural resource archaeology, because as, as you all know, this is a big part of the early stages of cultural resource work is exactly that question. Somebody's you know, going to put in a bridge or a highway. Are there sites in the way or not? And how do we know that? And also, how old they might be? Uh, I guess the most the most simple way to say it is, let's say, if you have a particular interest in um, an archaeological site that's uh, in a range of, say, ten to 15,000 years old, well, you're not going to look in deposits that you have reason to believe are 1,000 years old, and you're not going to look in deposits that you have reason to believe are 100,000 years old. I mean, that's, that's a, a gross oversimplification, but fundamentally, that's what a lot of us do. So dating... Uh, you already, we already talked a little bit about dating techniques like radiocarbon if you already or carbon fourteen if you already have some clues to the 
age of some deposits, that's one way to clue you in as to what might be there. Another way to think about it in North America, in general, it's it's pretty clear that that if there were people in North America before about 13,000 years ago, they, there weren't many and there weren't many places. So um, uh, certainly an awful lot of North America is affected by the glacial activity 20,000 years ago. Um, if, if you're dealing with deposits that you you know that are that old, if they're glacial deposits or other kinds of deposits that you know are 20,000 or 15,000 years old, that's probably not where you're going to find buried archaeological sites. Not It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Um, I'm thinking, too, of uh, finding any sort of deposits. I remember on an archaeological survey I did many years ago, in fact, before I was a geologist, but it was a great example. We were out surveying along the Rio Grande uh, in West Texas, and uh, they were going to channelize the river. And the uh, we had some maps. We were looking for archaeological sites, and, and, and the, the Boundary Commission, International Boundary Commission, had maps showing the position of the Rio Grande going back to 1851. And it, that river had gone from one side of the valley to the other. And as soon as we saw that map, we realized, oh, there aren't going to be any archaeological sites in there because the river's taken them all out. So just a, a real simple understanding of what how rivers work, what they do as they erode, we realized instantly that down on the floodplain, there was no chance of any, any archaeological materials older than the middle 1800s. So we ended up focusing our attention on other places. So, And one of my interests is weathering, uh, what happens to deposits when they're just laying around on the Earth's surface. And there are various clues to how long deposits have been just sitting there, weathering, subject to rain and wind and temperature and animals. And, all. and you can come up with reasonable guesstimates of, of how old deposits might be based on the, the weathering. And so as a, as a good first rule of thumb, when you're looking at deposits, if you have reason to believe that these layers are really, really old and you're looking for something quite young, um, it begins to tell you to go look in other places. I think that you touched on one of the major issues that we do as geoarchaeologists, and and this is a little bit technical, but I think I think the audience will appreciate that is that as geoarchaeologists, one of the major issues that we have to confront is what is the difference between stable and dynamic landscapes, and if we know that, for example, a stable landscape has existed for a while, there'll be a higher expectation for archaeological sites to be at that particular location. And for the geoarchaeologist, one of the major elements that he has to be familiar with is to differentiate between what we call sediments and what we call soils. So, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about the difference between sediments and soils, soils being an indicator of stable environments, sediments, say, being an indicator of more dynamic environments, so that people get a sort of a a sense of how we look for the difference between stable and, and dynamic landscapes and where sites are likely to occur and where they're not. Well, I love this question because um, especially when I used to do a lot of consulting, I would correct archaeologists and I correct students now with what term they're using. And so many people think, oh, that's just semantics. But it's not. It's incredibly important to what we're talking about. Um, sediments are unconsolidated material that can come from any source, and once they've been deposited, uh, then they begin to weather just under exactly what Vance was talking about, um, animals and 
weather and precipitation and temperature and all these things um, affect affect the weathering. And as as that as those sediments weather, they change and they form horizons um, that depend on the the amount of weathering and the original parent material, et cetera. And a knowledge of those horizons in the soils can tell you a great deal about the history of that landscape. And um, it's, in fact, uh, just a example that pops into my mind is I recently worked in an area where they were getting ready to um, remodel a golf course. And people had seen artifacts on the golf course, and they were interested to know, was there anything else left there? And so once we had peeled off essentially the grass, the grass was sitting right on a very well-developed subsoil. And knowing about the local bedrock and what the fact that their soils are forming and weathering bedrock, that soils that well-developed with that high clay content and bright red, that, that we were missing a lot of the original soil profile, that we were way down deep into the original soil profile. So if there had been an archaeological site there, it was long gone. Um, and all that we should find left is maybe the base of pits, that sort of thing, intrusive um, deposits. So I think um, that distinction between soils and sediments and understanding weathering sequences and what it can tell you about age and some of the, acti- some of the broad-scale geomorphic processes that have, have happened there is a very important distinction. When we're working in caves and rock shelters, we're typically dealing with sediments because we don't have those processes that form those kinds of weathering profiles where we get soil horizons. So um, I think distinguishing that is, is really important. And that's certainly a measure of the expectation of where sites are likely to be. Certainly in an open environment, if you see a soil, then you would have probably a higher expectation of a site being there, especially if you could relate the antiquity of the soil to an occupation. Uh, that's, let's say it's, uh, it's documented for the region. And so the geoarchaeologist comes in and says, well, we have, uh, uh, sites of this particular age because we have a soil forming here and we have an indication that this landscape has not been overly dynamic uh, during the uh, interval during which that site was occupied. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the types of interpretive perspectives that geoarchaeologists provide and uh, that w- what Vance was certainly talking about, the dynamism of river systems, for example, we know archaeological sites are likely to be there, but they're certainly not going to be in the axis of primary river movement. So um, we should look on the terraces and the higher landscapes for that. And I think that's, that's, that's a key element. And, and Sarah, certainly what you've told us about soils and the processes of weathering are, are, are such key elements to what we're doing. Um, Vance, I'm curious about natural archaeological lands landscapes versus cultural landscapes. You've done a lot of work on reconstructing natural landscapes. Uh, how do you put these things together, and, and, and how do you start the process of reconstructing ancient landscapes? Well, let me, if I could add one more thing to the prediction issue, I, a slightly okay. different approach. Also, just under looking at the sediments themselves uh, under your feet, if you're looking at deposits, let's say, or gravels, those are high energy, and the likelihood of, of a lot of in, intact archaeology in high energy deposits considerably less, as opposed to, say, silt, which could either come out of the out of airfall dust or on river floodplains, 
lower, much lower energy, particularly if it's airfall, no energy essentially, more, much more likelihood of, of preserved sites. So that's, again, that's a really good first gross but important uh, approximation of, of what you might be dealing with. Um, now, on landscapes, we could, your question was how, how do we go about getting at landscape, natural landscape reconstructions? Yes. Um, well, soils, uh, as Sarah was describing, that's certainly one of my interests, tell you to turn the story around. If you see soils buried, soils buried in, a, in a sequence of deposits or at the surface, soils form as a part of a landscape. Soils are intimately related to a landscape, and soils are a really good indicator of, of an ancient landscape, and, and they can, if you have enough, a good enough look at them, let's say over a large area, maybe in a big a big dig or road cuts or trenches or something like that, certainly a, a good way to begin to, to piece together the story of a, of a landscape, a paleo landscape, if you want to use that term, um, uh, certainly, probably all three of us have worked in situations where you have buried soils and buried landscapes, and and you can you can sort of connect the dots, and and wherever you see some of these soils, if you can uh, relate them, begin to see how maybe the landscape changed uh, or didn't change. In some cases, maybe it just built up, but didn't otherwise change. And uh, one of the things, certainly, your your mentor Carl Butzer used to probably one of the first people to really make the case for getting away from the archaeological sites. People didn't just hang around right where they were uh, living in a building or living in a tent or butchering an animal. They, they lived everywhere at some point in their lives. They were all over the landscape. And so one of the things a lot of us do is spend our time away from the archaeological site. What was the landscape a mile away or 10 miles away or or? 10 meters away from a, a campsite, what was going on there as well, because that's their environment, that's what they're living on for pretty much their entire lives, walking across it, hunting, whatever it happens to be. So uh, we have to spend time away from the archaeological site. Sometimes the, the archaeologists don't always like that. <laughs> Where does that go? Yeah. Well, right. yeah. Um, happens. I think more and more these days people are much more sensitive to that, but I think we've all had that experience of people wondering where we were. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, want to, I want to get back to that, yeah. but we're going to have to yeah. take another break. Sure. When we come back, I'd like to talk to both uh, Vance and Sarah about some of the key projects that they've been involved in and how they actually were able to reconstruct landscapes and archaeological scenarios and how they were able to integrate them. And we will be back with that discussion after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. 
On America's Front Lines of Crime and War with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra geoarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back on our special program on geoarchaeology or the intersection of the natural sciences, specifically geology and archaeology, and, and how a knowledge of natural sciences and geological processes is instrumental to understanding why archaeological sites are where they are, how they are preserved, and what the expectation is of finding them in particular landscapes. And uh, we're joined on our program with two expert geoarchaeologists, Vance Holliday, whose primary purview is the Western United States and early people, and Sarah Sherwood, who's done extensive work in uh, the southeastern United States and in the Balkans. Uh, Vance, we were talking about natural landscapes, and I would like for you to uh, tell us a little bit about your reconstruction uh Geoarchaeological reconstruction process, uh, projects that you, that started you off, I think, in in one of your major research process, projects in West Texas. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done there? Yeah, people were probably if if you've driven across West Texas, like I forty through Amarillo, people probably are surprised <laughs> that there's anything to look at below the surface because it's so flat. But it's it's subtle, but it's there. Yeah, um, it's it's an interesting area. It's one of the first parts of North America, I guess, where a long 
uh, archaeological record was established in part because there is a long record preserved in in the deposits. Uh, I mentioned historically, uh, this is where a lot of the early geoarchaeology began in the oh 1930s, 1940s, because they have these thick um, records, uh, five, ten meters, you know, quite a, quite a bit of, of sediment there that's accumulated over the last. 15,000 years in, in places just choked with archaeology, and uh, the the ancient landscape was quite a bit different than what it is today. There were lots of lakes, natural lakes, and there were shallow valleys carrying uh, abundant water. Certainly, very different from the hot, dry, dusty West Texas landscape we have today, and um, that was intriguing to the geologists and archaeologists and. So, and, and that's actually by, by kind of a fluke. I started working there just as an archaeologist and almost immediately became interested in the, the geologic record because it was so apparent that this, this was a key part of the story. So that's really how I, I got to where I am is trying to relate the archaeology to the geology and environmental changes. So, for example, in the, the valleys, uh, there are the so-called draws, like Blackwater Draw, the bottom uh, in the oldest valley deposits, which cut down into the bedrock, you always see stream deposits, gravel, sand, and this is where you have the the so-called Clovis mammoth hunters, the really the first occupants of the region. And then uh, there's a very abrupt change to lake sediments, and so one of the one of the things I'm still interested in is understanding that change. How do you go from flowing water, nice meandering perennial streams almost instantly, geologically instantly, to standing lakes and marshes. That's a, a dramatically abrupt environmental change of some kind. I think it has to do with drying. Uh, some of my colleagues don't agree, but I, to me the logical answer is that you have less water in the system. Well, how do you have less water in the system? You've got less rain on the landscape, and the water table goes down. And then you could see very clearly how that gives way to increasingly drier conditions, and you get to the point about, oh, 6,000 years ago where it's all dust and sand that's blowing in there. So quite a dramatic change from 13,000 years to 6,000 years that I think we can attribute to increasing desiccation, increasing drying, and then that returns. You see evidence for a little bit more wetter condition in the last few thousand years. And, in fact, there's, there's a, I won't say a gap or a hiatus, but there's considerably a, a significantly less archaeology in that five, six, seven thousand year period on the Great Plains, certainly on the southern Great Plains. It's probably related to those much more harsh environmental conditions. So you go from this probably ideal a situation for hunters and gatherers, rivers, lakes, marshes, uh, everywhere, well, in the valleys anyway, quite common, to this very dry, desiccated uh, plains in a matter of about 6,000 years. Uh, and we're trying to deal with some similar things now in the southwest. The, the geologic situation is a little bit different, but as you know, there used to be huge lakes in the southwest right at the end of glacial times, and when the first people, Clovis, for example, arrived, some of those lakes were still around. And, and another one of my interests is trying to 
trying to understand how people dealt with or adapted to those lakes as they were disappearing. Because as people arrived, the lakes were going down. And, of course, now there's essentially none of these lakes left except for just a very few here and there. So sort of broadly similar questions, but somewhat different uh, geologic contexts. So one of the questions I think that might interest our audience, and uh, I should mention that Vance has put together a very intricate sequence of deposits for this, these uh, intervals that go basically from 13,000 years ago uh, into the modern times. How do you recognize the changes in the environments through the profile, through the sediments? What are the distinguishing characteristics of the sediments? Do we have soils? We have carbonates, uh, certainly in the western United States. Why don't you give us a little bit of information on how you're able to oh. link up a stratigraphy or a sequence of deposits to a particular landscape? Yeah, well, uh, as I mentioned, the, some of the oldest layers we see regularly in the valleys there, the earliest, are gravel uh, stream deposits, uh, like you, just like you'd see on a, uh, any gravel bar in a, a river in, the, in North America today, s- uh, stream, sand, and gravel. And then on top of that are lake deposits. Oh, uh, in some cases, they may just be very fine-grained. Uh, we just call them mud with lots of organic matter, so a kind of a marsh or wetland situation. And the organic matter would come from the abundant biological activity, but very fine particles, clay and silt-sized particles, which is essentially very little energy to move as opposed to, you know, gravels. Immediately, just below, like a few inches below, you have these stream deposits, these gravels, relatively high energy situation. We also have another good indicator for us for some of these uh, marsh and lake deposits are the, is the microfauna, mi- microflora-like. Uh, we have these little microscopic uh, indicators called diatoms. If anybody in the audience out there has a swimming pool, they might use diatomaceous earth in the swimming pool. Well, diatomaceous earth has these little beasts called diatoms, and they're really good indicators of water temperature, water depth, water chemistry. Uh, so we've put together that story, the flowing water to standing water story, based on just the sediments, the character of the sediments, very finely layered lake deposits um, from, uh, well, like I say, silt and clay and diatoms, very low energy resting on top of these high-energy stream deposits. And then above that, there are other kinds of lake deposits like, uh, you said, carbonates, calcium carbonate or lime uh, that commonly form in some of the drier lake basins <clears throat> looks really very different from the stream and uh, lake deposits with the diatoms. But the the one thing, the real common sediment out there is this, uh, I was talking about these uh, sandy uh, deposits from about 6,000 years ago. They're just massive, oh, two meters maybe or more, massive accumulations of just sand and silt from dust. They're not layered like stream deposits. There's no organic matter from a lot of biological productivity. It's just a big pile of sand. And out on the Great Plains, the, as, as, as anybody who's lived there knows, the easiest way to get sediment moving around is wind and uh, dryland conditions, drought. Like in the 30s and the 50s and much more recently, you dry out the land, you reduce the vegetation cover, and that landscape takes off, and you produce dust and sand 
storms, and I think that was what was going on. It's, it's the it's the simplest way to account for these massive accumulations of of sediment of the sand, sandy and silty sediment in these valleys, is to blow it in. And we see modern analogs uh, out there today, probably last spring, in a lot of places, and certainly from the the famous uh, dust bowl of the 30s and the the drought of the of the 50s and 70s. So there are a lot of clues that we can use to uh, to reconstruct those particular kinds of environmental settings. And you're able to link the particular uh, sequence of developments basically to climate cycles. Yeah, that's what we try to do anyway. We think we were doing that, certainly to environmental conditions. And then from that, the next step, which can be a stretch, is what are, what are the climate temperature and, and precip that might produce those particular environmental conditions? Yes, exactly. And, that's, and, and that's, we could trace them over. And the, uh, where I was working on Great Plains, a very unusual situation. We could trace these deposits miles and miles and miles along some of these valleys. And uh, we will get back to, to this a little bit later on in the discussion using this geoarchaeological uh, protocol and, and paradigm to get into questions of climate and climate change. But we will take a break at this point, and we will come back and discuss the nature of Sarah Sherwood's uh, geoarchaeological excavations and uh, uh, studies and, and the types of landscapes that she deals with when we come back after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
Welcome back. Uh, this is our episode on geoarchaeology in, in our program. And uh, we are looking at the interface of the geological sciences and, and uh, traditional and even more sophisticated archaeology, if you will. But geology factors heavily into archaeological interpretation as has become a more significant played a more significant role in archaeological uh, interpretation as time moves along and our methods get increasingly more sophisticated in the last segment Vance Holiday talked about uh, natural deposition understanding transformations to the environments that people occupied in in earlier time frames in North America and how climate and environmental change is visible in the record of archaeological sediments. Sarah Sherwood has done extensive work on the anthro or anthropogenic or the human component of sedimentation and site formation in the southeastern United States and has recently done some very extensive work on mounds, mounds being a feature across the world of more sophisticated cultural complexes. They represent raised surfaces in which uh, cultural debris has simply accumulated and has subsequently accumulated more as successive groups of people uh, live on a particular landscape. Sarah, tell us a little bit about how you uh, made the transition, in a sense, from looking at natural sediments to actually archaeological sediments as deposits and as creations of, of, of human activity in your mound studies. Well, I'd say I first got interested in the amount of sediment that people contribute to a site uh, with a site called Dust Cave um, in northern Alabama in the Tennessee Valley. And this cave has about four meters of deposits that go down to bedrock. And we realized in a hurry that that much of that sequence, it dates from about 13,000 to about 5,000 years ago. Um, the, very, it, the cave had essentially almost filled um, by around 5,000 years ago, and so people really couldn't live there anymore. And um, a surprising percentage of the sediments in that cave are there because of human activity. People sweeping up fireplaces and bringing in materials and making stone tools and processing plant materials. It's, it's, I think that was my, the real interest. I went in there thinking it was going to be about reconstructing natural processes of floods in the cave and deposits from within the cave system, but that was only part of the picture. Um, so I think that's, that's really how I got interested in looking at anthropogenic uh, deposits. And then as far as um, the, the, well, the tells, the way you were describing mounds, the, the mounds in eastern North America and other areas in the world, the ones that are intentionally built, uh, sometimes they're related to burials, but oftentimes, especially later on, they're related to creating monuments. Um, ceremonial stuff. Right. Uh, monumental yeah. surfaces where you might build uh, an important person's home or a council house or a temple, something like that, raising the surface of the landscape, sometimes many, many meters. Um, we have those throughout. We have hundreds of those sites now. There were probably thousands at one time, but hundreds in the eastern U.S. And there are also some, of course, in the southwest, Um but and around the world, but they are very different from tells that are most more common in the Near East and in the Balkans, where people live 
um, intensively for thousands of years in one place, and it's just the accumulation of debris. It's not really the intentional construction. Um, right. So the mounds uh, here in the eastern U.S., they're, they're essentially dirt as artifact because they are intentionally constructed with a surprising amount of engineering ingenuity and techniques where they're using different kinds of sediments and soil material to build structures that can literally support a building. Um, and so for a long time in our studies of these kinds of features, it's always been about, well, what was the building on top like? And usually they were built in stages where people would build a building on top of a surface and then maybe at the, with the change in the leadership or a, a, a significant event, they would burn it and, and add more sediment and build a new structure. So it's always been about the artifacts and the houses or buildings. And um, us, well, I guess some years ago now, uh, we worked on a project for the National Park Service on uh, called Shiloh Mounds in West Tennessee. That's the site's mostly known for its Civil War. It's rolled during the Civil War, but there is a significant late prehistoric, what we call the Mississippian period of um, people living there that had a had several mounds constructed on the Tennessee River. And our our work on that mound, and this was a salvage project because the mound was is slowly dropping into the river due to erosion along the river. Um, that the mound was built very carefully out of lots of different kinds of, of textures of sediments, and they were placed in different ways to make the mound stable. Um, and it's really the only reason that these mounds are still here today. For a long time, we just treated them as oh, basket loads of dirt. They were just piled up, you know, piles of dirt. And if that were the case, they'd probably long since be gone. Um, I recently finished work on one in the Mississippi coast where uh, when Katrina hit, it took down the brick house that was right next to it, and the mound was virtually untouched. So, And this mound was built out of sand. Um, so clearly there's a lot of engineering involved here. So that's, that's part of my uh, interest in, from a geoarchaeological perspective is to look at how people are manipulating sediments and how they're using them in the built environment. And you're essentially looking at architectural features, right? I mean, these are these are designed and intentionally designed to uh, to be uh, very stable landscapes. Yes, absolutely. And um, and what's been interesting is looking at several of these different mounds. I've uh, worked quite a bit with my colleague T. R. Kidder out of Washington University. He has looked at. Um, Monk's Mound at Cahokia and a large mound at the site of Poverty Point, which was a very, very early mound, um, built slightly differently than the later ones. But in the other mounds that we've been looking at, and, and you start to see repeated patterns that, that they were using some of the same techniques. And the story that I often tell from the Shiloh Project was when we had finished, uh, we only dug a small portion of the mound, but it was enough to get a, a good idea of a full uh, profile. And when I showed that detailed profile to the head of civil engineering at the University of Tennessee, um, his response was, uh, 
well, Native Americans couldn't have built this. And I said, well, why not? He said, because um, this is how we would build an embankment today. We would use these exact same techniques. I said, well, the mound is over 600 years old. Well, that can't be. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's been fun to sort of um, rearrange our preconceived notions of what these monuments are and how they were built uh, and the realization that, that the excavations of these mounds is really not about the artifacts. It's about the stratigraphy and the layering and, and where, where they are going to get some of these sediments and how they are combining them and, and almost concocting sediments to put in the mound. Um, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, we're going to have to wrap up here, but I just want to conclude with uh, with what Sarah said, that the technology that was used and the uh, the understanding that people had of their environments in the prehistoric period seemed to basically have carried over. And so even though the technology is a little bit different, the same basic concepts were understood by uh, by the prehistoric people. And I think uh, there's a lesson in there for everybody. And on that note, I just want to thank my very, very distinguished guests, Dr. Sarah Sherwood of the University of the South and Dr. Vance Holliday of the University of Arizona for participating in this today's discussion. And I hope that we come away with an appreciation of what geoarchaeology does for archaeological interpretation. And in further subsequent episodes, I think we'll be taking this theme a bit further. We'll talk about things like climatic change and how our lessons from the past can carry over to the future into the debates of global warming and the like and uh, thanks so much again both of you for participating and we will see you next week thank you thanks Joe thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.